Hi, I'm Josh Porter, and I'm one among several men and women who lead Van City Church. You're about to hear the fourth and final teaching from our 2019 Vision Series, and it's all about generosity, giving, and the financial future of Van City. For those of you listening to this podcast that do not also belong to the Van City family proper, our humble request is that you might thoughtfully and prayerfully consider the possibility of supporting Van City financially. To do so, visit vancity.church give. Either way, thanks for listening. Tonight's conversation uh, is an important one for us, and uh, there's a lot here, so I'm going to do the best I can to talk fast without sounding like an auctioneer or something like that. Uh, just give me your patience. Are you guys awake? You up for it? You feeling all right? Great. Um, many of you know, if you know me at all, that some five years ago, my dad died suddenly in his sleep. It was, um, as those of you familiar with sudden death or sudden tragedy, a, a real chaotic f few days. I had, at the time, a relatively new baby. My son, Beck, was just a few months old. Work was very busy. Um, I was trying to, all of a sudden, work out a very... Oh my gosh, I saw my reflection. I thought someone was coming on stage. I was trying to work out. <laughs> my family lives. <laughs> that was funny? Okay. Yeah, loosen up, loosen up. Um, my family lives in Georgia, so all of a sudden, like in the middle of all these other big things happening in life, I'm trying to work out a flight home and figure out how to get there as fast as I can um, just to get to a funeral that I didn't want to attend, obviously, that I wished wasn't happening at all. And neither my brother Patrick nor I could afford plane tickets for both ourselves and our wives. So we just said, look, we're just going to have to go. The two of us, we scraped uh, together enough cash for ourselves. We planned to go alone until a friend of ours heard about this. There, he was asking about our schedule and work and what we were doing. And he's like, wait a minute, they're not coming with you. And he would have none of it. He was like, man, this is Abby's uh, father-in-law. This is Vanessa's father-in-law. It's someone that they knew and that they loved dearly. So he bought plane tickets for both of them so that we could be to, he's like, you need to be with your uh, wives and they need to be with you in your time of grief. Um, and that was something that struck me in a monumental way at the time. Have you ever experienced a moment of need met by an instance of what felt to you like profound generosity? I, I rarely feel at a loss for words, to a fault, obviously. But I remember on that occasion feeling like I, I couldn't quite articulate the depth of my gratitude. So I just said, thank you. Which brings us to Philippians chapter 4. Now, Philippians is a letter written by a man called Paul. And much of the letter is a thank you note. Paul was in prison, this is the context we think in Rome at the time of writing, and he was preaching this treasonous message that Jesus is Lord, which meant by inference that Caesar was not Lord, which is a dangerous thing to go around saying openly in the Roman Empire. Thanks, Tab. Let's just watch him do it for a second. Thanks, sir. Hey, Eric, is it working now? Still gap. Okay, I'll just use this thing, that's fine. It's still doing the thing. I guess it wasn't the batteries after all. Okay, so 
Paul's going around saying that Jesus is Lord, which of course means by inference that Caesar is not. This gets him into trouble, so he's locked up as an enemy of the state. Now, in the Roman prison system, things like food and water and clothes were not provided for you. So prisoners had to rely on family members and friends to take care of them while they were locked up. They'd have to show up routinely and give them food and clothes and a jacket if it got cold. But Paul was at the time more than a thousand miles from Jerusalem. He was in the heart of the empire, and he is actually we think at this point starving to death for want of provision but then a gentleman called Epaphroditus shows up Epaphroditus belonged to a church Paul had planted in a city called Philippi when Paul was nearing the brink of death Epaphroditus showed up on behalf of the Philippian church with money with food with water and with clothes for Paul so Paul was saved Later on, Paul sent a letter back to the church in Philippi, which is, among other things, a glorified thank you note. So let's read from chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now, that word rejoice, I rejoiced in the Lord, can be translated celebrate. In fact, another way of translating that same sentence is, I am having a great celebration in the Lord. And that word renewed, you renewed your concern for me as a botanical metaphor. It stirs up imagery of like a flower budding in the spring. Paul is kind of poetically saying that in the bleak winter of his life, the generosity of the Philippians was like the thaw. It was like hope. It was like spring. And he goes on. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, the text doesn't mention why the Philippians had not yet had a chance to express their concern for Paul. could have been their own poverty. They just didn't have any money at all. It could have been that Paul was too far away and they couldn't get anyone down there. At any rate, things have somehow changed and they can now express their concern with money and food and provision for Paul. And Paul is celebrating from within his prison cell. He's still in jail. He goes on to say in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need. So that's weird, right? Starving to death in prison seems like a pretty cut and dry case of need, if you ask me. But he goes on, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now Paul is not suddenly becoming rude and turning his nose up at their gifts. Remember, he just said, I'm celebrating. So this strange paradoxical train of thought, I was not in need when I was in need, becomes a teaching moment whereby Paul, who's also a pastor, a teacher, master apprentice of Jesus, is imparting something profound to the Philippians. Though he was in real circumstantial need, he had everything that he needed covered in Jesus and was content. Arguably the most famous psalm of all time begins with the line, The Lord is my shepherd, therefore what? I shall not want. I lack nothing. So Paul goes on in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, that much is clear, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now the word uh, secret is a Greek word that was used in ancient Eastern mystery religions that required all kinds of initiation rituals to gain secret knowledge about the universe. Paul is using that language to say now that he has the real secret, and it's the secret to being content, the secret to being satisfied. I lack nothing. I shall not want. This is a universal human desire. 
and one that continues to escape the grasp of most human beings on earth, myself included. Think about it. How many of us can say, I am fully and truly content? I don't want or need more money or status or things. I'm totally fine right now with my marriage or my singleness. I'm fine with where I live and what I do. I'm fine with what I have and I have not done and accomplished. I am truly content. Now, that wouldn't mean that you no longer have desires or dreams or ambition. It's not Buddhism. It's not the idea that you dispense with desire. It just means that regardless of what does or does not come to fruition, you are satisfied and fulfilled. Paul is saying, I've figured out how to do that. And lest anyone argue, oh, easy for him to say. Remember, he's in prison. He's on the brink of death by starvation and exposure. He's been beaten by soldiers so far in the story, run out of cities. He's been on trial. He's been poor. He's been persecuted. He's seen church plants rise up and flourish. He's seen church plants um, fall and be torn apart by sin. He's seen friends who have come to faith in Jesus, and he's seen friends walk away from faith in Jesus. He is, I think, in the best place to teach us about contentment. And notice just a few things before we move on from here. First, contentment is something that you have to learn. Paul writes, I have, and I quote, learned the secret. Meaning contentment is unnatural. It's not the default setting of human beings. I heard a stand-up comedian once do this whole bit on his theory that humans are actually from another planet, arguing that this would be the only thing that explains why we are so uncomfortable here. We are not naturally content. It's something that we have to learn. In the story of the Bible, the first two jokers in the story, in a garden where everything is very nice, very good, God says, listen, we got a pretty good thing going here. This is a great place to start. We we can do some serious good work together, you guys and me. This is how God talks. This is my version. So he's like, so listen, one thing before we really, you know, hit off to the races. Don't eat the one tree. Everything else is fine. Other than that, we're all set. Have a blast. And what happens? They eat the one tree in the story, which I think is hilarious, because it's like, I wanted, the, I wanted that tree, you know, that thing. Almost everything in the story is a yes, and they go for the one no in the whole garden. And really, it's the story of our lives, isn't it? When, when my life has overflown with reasons to be content. I have, in the past, willingly overlooked all of them to instead focus on that which I do not have and allow it to make me entirely discontented. Contentment is not natural, but it can be learned. And secondly, true contentment is not contingent on outside circumstances. Few of us actually say we think this, but most of us, I would wager, do believe, either deep down or right on the surface, that when we get X, we will be content. But only then. I remember I was traveling uh, circa 2002, I think, and I met a young man with what looked then like a a small Nintendo Game Boy, if you know what that is. It was white and kind of thick like a brick, and it was called, he told me, an iPod. 
And uh, I, was, I was at the time traveling the world with dozens of CDs and a zip-up binder thing. And this dude, he told me, could store almost 100 albums on this little Game Boy. And he explained the totally efficient and not at all cumbersome process to me. He said, you load your existing CDs into your computer one by one, and the computer will transfer each track digitally one at a time onto this hard drive, and then you relocate it onto the iPod, and presto, an hour later, you're ready to listen to that one album. And I was like, I'm sold. This is the most amazing piece of technology it has ever been my privilege to understand. Um, and then I heard the price point, which is, if you don't remember, in 2002 for a first-gen iPod, $399. The conversation was over. It, it might as well have been a million dollars to me. I remember thinking, like, oh, well, then under no circumstances will I ever own that thing. And uh, even though the iPod was totally unattainable in my world, I remember thinking about and talking about this stupid thing as if it would one day solve all my problems. I was dragging several CD binders around everywhere I went. I was like, man, one day if I could just ever, if I win the lottery, it's the first thing I'm going to buy. But many of you already know from experience that more money or more things or actually getting the thing that you want never actually satisfies you in the long run. They only feed a smoldering human desire for more money and more things. But Paul argues that there is a secret to dousing that fire. He says what the secret is in verse 13. I can do all this, meaning I can be content whether I have stuff or don't have stuff. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The secret, apparently, is this gentleman called Jesus of Nazareth. And man, that quote sounds amazing. If you lift this verse right out of its context, you can hang it on walls or quote it to stir people up and encourage someone on a bad day. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that's not all wrong, but in context, Paul is saying that he can be content whether he has money and food and stuff or not. He'll be just fine as long as he has Jesus. We tend to believe that Self-sufficiency is the secret to contentment. When we have enough money and stuff, when we're not scraping by, but when we're finally comfortable, not depending on others, then we will be content. Problem is, all of human history is a case study in the fact that this never works. And really, Paul's need was only one reason why the gift from the church in Philippi was important. Keep reading. Verse 14 Yet, even though he can be content without anything, yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, that's the region near Philippi, so meaning right after I left you guys, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once, when I was in need. So Paul is celebrating these guys and gals, the church in Philippi, specifically because they are mature in an area where most other churches in his experience have been lacking, and that is the area of generosity. Look at this from another one of Paul's letters, this one to a church in a city called Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, meaning the Philippians. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
So we think Paul is talking about a period of famine for the church in Macedonia. We don't know for sure, but somehow, whatever it was, it gave way for a season of joy and generosity. And Paul goes on to write this, For I testify that they gave us as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So here in Philippians, Paul is heaping praise on the church in Philippi. He's saying, listen, I've traveled all over the empire and back. I've planted all sorts of churches, and you guys get it. So he's proud of them, in other words. And he goes on, Philippians 4, verse 17. It's not that I, Paul, desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Listen to this. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to who? God. That's weird. Wasn't this gift for Paul? Remember that for later. Verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in King Jesus the Messiah. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now obviously there's a lot here, but one dimension of this text is obviously the concept of giving. Throughout the New Testament, disciples of Jesus teach and embody the practice of giving finances to sustain the church and the work of the church for the kingdom of God. And that's where we're going with this tonight. For the last few weeks, we've been in our annual vision series, which is a time where we remind each other why we're here and what we see on the road ahead as we approach another year together as Van City Church. Now, I know that we're already knee-deep in this thing, but before we wade out into the deeper water, I want to set down a disclaimer right here. Many of you, I know, have a bad taste in your mouth, as it were, when it comes to the idea of the church and money. If you're younger than 35 or so, you've likely seen in your lifetime, in your youth, a lot of corruption. If you're older than that, you've likely seen a lot of corruption. You're but if you're uh, younger than 35, your default setting might be skepticism or cynicism when it comes to church and money. Maybe you're skeptical of authority in general. And even if you are a model churchgoer, something in you maybe tenses at the mention of money in church by a pastor, which is what's going on, to be clear. And I realize all that. I don't take it for granted at all. That said, I can't really do this teaching or this text without being particularly candid about what I see in it and what the text is saying and what it has to do with this particular church and the vision of the coming year. So what I'm asking is that you suspend judgment, do your best to hear me out for the next few minutes. There's a bit of inside baseball about our church. If you're new or just dropping in, pardon the family talk. But really, this has to do with all of us either way, whether you've been here from the beginning or you're just visiting for this evening. So can we go for it? Is that all right? Great. Thank you. So this is a text about giving. So let's talk about that. As you know, I am a, a contrarian by nature, so before we spend the bulk of our time on just what giving is, let's first address a few common misconceptions about giving. If you're taking notes, let's begin with this. Giving is not tipping. 
The idea is not that you're just, you know, kind of throwing loose change into a passing basket when you have it on your person. Um, the idea is not that you're logging into PushPay, which is an app that we use to do giving digitally, to throw a few extra bucks at Vance City when you happen to think of it. That's more like tipping the church or something like that. Tipping is not giving, nor is giving paying the church for goods and services. There is a pragmatic component to giving, and we'll get to all that in just a moment, but giving is not a financial compensation for a service provided every Sunday. If you think of it that way, you inevitably run into all sorts of weird problems with giving and you get people hesitant to give before they understand each and every function of the church to ensure that the payment is well-deserved. But giving is not a reward for a church doing a good job. It's not even necessarily an approval of anything and everything that the church and its budget does. Now, don't get me wrong. We go to great lengths to be above reproach with our budget, and I'll tell you all about it before we're done. But giving, as you'll see in a moment, has more to do with you and God than it has to do with the church budget. I've been going to and working within churches for years now, and I've so often heard folks who refuse to give until they know exactly where every dime is headed. And I understand that. They've seen corruption or they've seen um, money used poorly. But I asked a mentor of mine, someone who has been working with church plants for decades now, about that early on in the Van City story. And he said, look, the, the specific details of the church budget are rarely, if ever, the real reason someone is reticent to give. It's usually something else. But finally... Giving is not a scheme cooked up by churches and pastors to get rich. If that was the plan, it's working quite poorly for us. Um, yes, as I've already mentioned, much evil has been done by church leaders under the guise of encouraging their churches to give, and it still happens all the time. You can just log on to the internet and read about it. But that's a problem with people, not with the concept of giving. Do you realize that one out of every four teachings from Jesus of Nazareth was on money? What if a quarter of every single sermon I did was uh, about money? One in every four sermons on money. Money, like it or not, is wholly inseparable from your discipleship to Jesus. It is profoundly woven into the very image of God in you, and there is a lot to it. Now, lots of folks squirm at the idea of openly discussing their finances with the people, even in their community, but imagine if someone were to say that they didn't think it proper to discuss prayer with the people in their community. The way you handle money is part of how you follow Jesus. So let's just start with this. This, what I'm about to say, is not in any way theologically controversial. It's not a minority position. It is not in any way debated or, frankly, debatable. In the worldview of the Bible, giving is good. Because God made it up. Tonight's text is only one small example, but in it, Paul writes, it was good of you before he thanks them for their giving. And this fundamental, foundational idea in the Bible is based on one very simple notion that the Bible also makes abundantly clear. God is generous. God gives. 
And I want to be clear on what that means. If you're anything like me, you hear God is generous, and you think of like a stoic, wealthy, powerful person who sees fit to bestow blessing on those below him, nipping at his heels, like, you know, Bill Gates giving to charity or something like that. But the biblical idea that God is generous is about God's innate state of being, not something that he chooses to do because he's so awesome. It's just who he is. He is, by nature, generous. It's part of his character. How many of you know or have known a person who is by nature very generous? It has nothing to do with how much they do or don't have. They just readily and happily give of themselves because, for whatever reason, that's who they are. They like to do that. God is generous like that, but more so. And because of God's generosity, we breathe God's oxygen. We are loved by God. He gives us himself. He gives us his love. We can be, through no effort of our own, reconciled to God. We can know him. We can be known by him. We can be healed and restored and and given hope, a future, a place in God's family, all because God is generous. God gives. And when you emulate God's generosity, even through something like your finances, you tap into the character of God and you learn to know what he's like and to know him better. And when you tap into God's generosity, you tap into God's contentment. God is content. Think of that language from the psalm again. I shall not want or I lack nothing. And in doing so, you stand to be set free from discontentment and greed. And this too, the fact that that can even happen at all, is a gesture of God's generosity. Giving is God's cure for greed. The cure to more. The cure for fear and anxiety, the fretful clamoring for comfort and security and stuff. Jesus himself taught this so that his disciples went around quoting him. In Acts 20, it says, The Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Very few of us believe that. And fewer still live that way, but there it is. And this idea is crucial to Paul's understanding of how a church functions in the first place. Remember his language from Philippians. He says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I just left your church, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Paul, in this paradigm, is the church leader. He's the pastor or the elder. And in his mind, there is a partnership between himself and the people of the church through giving. Meaning we are in this together. We make sacrifices. We share. This isn't about profit or loss or developing a business or a brand. This is about the kingdom of God. And we are in this together or it does not work. The leaders of the church, not just me, but all the leaders of Van City and the church in general, give much of their lives to teaching the way of Jesus, working to guide and shepherd and serve others in the way of Jesus. Not perfectly by any means, you know that, but that's why we are here. And because of that, the church in Philippi came to know Jesus in the first place and came to know what he's like and to learn to follow him well. And that generosity was reciprocated by that church coming through for Paul with finances and resources. They're like, look, you... You taught us the way of Jesus. God was at work in you, and now we are at work in God for you on your behalf. It's not payment for goods and service. Well, you taught us the gospel, so here's your payment, food. 
don't die <laughs> in prison. It's generosity. It was good of you to share with me. And when that happens, the kingdom grows and spreads. Now, I realize we are a small church and we are anything but perfect. But over and against all of that, and in spite of our best efforts to wreck it, God has been very kind to us. This has been a place where God has shaped disciples of Jesus, a place where God has renewed faith for people who were, frankly, about to lose or abandon their faith. This has been a place where men and women have come to faith for the first time, been baptized. This has been a place where God has spoken over and into people's lives by His Spirit and through other men and women speaking into their lives. This has been a place where men and women have learned community. This has been a place where people have cared for one another and met needs and sacrificed for each other. We've held one another in tragedy and we've celebrated healing and breakthrough and marriages and kids being born, a million kids being born. No more kids, by the way. This has been the very first place that my kids and many of your kids learned stories from the Bible and came home telling their parents about them. That is the kingdom of God. And ever since the church began, we've set aside 10% of every dollar given for justice causes, both locally and internationally. And we, our tiny little family, have been able to give tens of thousands of dollars to orphanages and refugee care and more through that giving. And it's easy to get all romantic and pretend like that. That requires no money. It just happened. But that's not an idea shared by Paul or the authors of the New Testament or God. It takes time. It takes work. It takes electric bills and rent and salaries and guitar strings and Kids' curriculum and coffee, amen. That, that was my first amen as a teacher, by the way. Probably the last one, too. And that's not bad that those things require finances. It's just the way that it is. But when you share with us in the matter of giving and receiving, you are contributing to those stories, not indirectly, directly. We don't like to think of, say, Van City Kids as something that we pay for, but it costs a lot of money to have curriculum and snacks and crafts, and we certainly should provide something for Megan, who works so hard for very little to make it all happen in the first place. When you give, you contribute to all of that, and my kid comes home telling me all about the story of God creating the universe out of nothing and how God loved uh, people and how he made elephants and stuff, and then, of course, he draws dinosaurs on the margins of this paper, and that's fine. That's part of it, too, but it's great. You're contributing to all that, and Paul even writes... I don't want your money. I want more credited to your account. Remember, it's not just the pragmatic aspect of the thing. Yes, it's pragmatic, but there's more than that. Now, the prosperity gospel, if you know that term, which was once famous among like televangelists and like figures like Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen and the like, and it continues to live on and live and thrive a little more subtle now, but amongst celebrity megachurch pastors and certain wings of the new charismatic movement. But the prosperity gospel argues, listen, God wants you rich. And if you give money to God, he gives money back to you. Earlier this year, uh, Abby was traveling, my wife Abby, and she visited one location of a world-famous church that infamously keeps the prosperity gospel alive. And she told me that she was genuinely taken aback as pastors stood up on stage during the offering and told the crowds, just think of everything that God will give you if you give tonight, if you dig deep and pour out finances, how much money God will give you back. She's like, whoa, people talk like this? What did Paul get for his giving to God? Prison? 
for one. Ultimately, execution, by the way. (laughs) The idea that God will give you stuff if you give is not at all what Paul is getting at here when he says, I want more credited to your account. For one, Paul himself is on the brink of starvation in prison. He's given his life for God and is as impoverished as one gets. But Paul does mean that there is something in it for you when you give. He's not just, he's just not talking about money or stuff. What's in it for you is actually much better than those things. You grow and mature. You tap into the heart of God. You battle greed and you experience contentment. Those are all good things for you. The only problem is, if we're honest, we think money is better than those things. Here's another excerpt from another of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, which was a church like ours struggling to grow in generosity. To them, he wrote this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Again, The idea is not reap more money, but will reap more contentment, reap more closeness to God, more freedom. And then he goes on, each of you should give what you have decided to give in your heart. Now listen, do not take that to mean, hey, whatever you pick, you decide in your heart to give nothing, great, nothing it is. Paul is saying, think about this. It should be a thoughtful decision. Pray and seek and challenge yourself. And when you know in your heart what is right, act on it consistently. How do I know that that's what he's getting at? Look at the next words. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, meaning you should be happy, honored to be able to participate in the kingdom this way. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all times, at all, or all things, in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, you don't get stuff just to have it. You get it so that you can use it to do good. Which means that giving should be generous. Not stingy, not, as Paul wrote, reluctant. It should not be an insignificant slice of what you have. It should be a generous gift. And notice we keep using that language of giving. If you've been around the church for more than a minute, you've likely heard tell of a concept called tithing. The tithe was a Hebrew word that meant 10%, and it was an ancient art form dating all the way back to Abraham in which God's people willingly gave 10% of their income back to God as an act of worship, which is why we frame our time of offering as a time of worship. When I was a kid, I got my allowance. It was a dollar a week in dimes. And the reason I got it in dimes is that one of those dimes went plink in the collection plate that passed around on Sunday because, thankfully, my parents taught me the art of tithing, which means they said I had to do it. But by the grace of God, <laughs> because, I, because I was taught this as a boy, it is something I've carried on into adulthood and, and to this day, I get to take 10% out of every paycheck and give it to the church. Now, that's not all I give and not the only place I give it, but I start there. Not because I have to, but because I get to worship God this way through this ancient art form. And I I don't say any of this to sound self-righteous because I was taught this. I did not come to it on my own. I didn't just decide to give a dime of my measly dollar. I would have totally kept it had they let me. But I'm grateful because I learned that the more you make, the more you have, and then the harder it is to give part of it away. It's 10% either way, 
But giving a dime is easier than giving a few hundred dollars, and it will always be easier. I can't tell you how often I've heard people say things like, well, when I get a better job, I'm going to start giving, or when I have a little bit extra, I'll start giving, whatever it might be. There will always be an excuse, and it will not get any easier to do. It will get harder. And even if you embrace tithing, we tend to frame it poorly in the church, and as such, it's largely misunderstood. For starters, people misunderstand tithing by assuming that they are giving God 10% of their money. But really, God is letting you keep 90% of His money. Everything in the story of the Scriptures, the air in your lungs, everything that you have, even your own body, according to the Scriptures, does not belong to you. It's all God's. Even you yourself as an entity are not your own. And when we understand that, little by little, it has this counterintuitive way of freeing you up rather than restricting you. You're freed up to stop worrying about my stuff, holding on to my stuff, and you start enjoying God's stuff that he so generously shares with you. The other way that we misunderstand tithing is by assuming it's some kind of black and white rule. It isn't a rule in the strict sense. It's wisdom, I would argue. It's an ancient art form. It's still great to practice today. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a way to embrace generosity with a quantifiable act of worship. But in, interestingly, in the New Testament, the language shifts from tithing to generosity. And this is important for us because, and please listen, for the vast majority of us, 10% is not generous, self-sacrificial giving. It isn't for me. It disappears from my account. I don't feel a thing. It doesn't change me because I don't feel it. So Abby and I, we need to give more, and we do. And there are all kinds of ways to do that. We budget for generosity after our tithe. You can do that by sponsoring a kid or uh, uh, donating to justice causes, buying someone dinner that's in need or just as a good friend. All kinds of things you can do to embrace generosity, to deflect your income so that you can give. It's better to give than to receive. If you are below America's poverty line, you still make up the wealthiest 10% of the human population. And I say that not as guilt, but as perspective. It's pretty easy to give painlessly because most of us have more than we need even if we say we don't, because we have less than we want. So dispensing with excess is, is hardly noteworthy. And though the old expression sounds really tough, I find it to be theologically helpful, and it has been for me, the old idea to give until it hurts. Because giving should cost you something. And if this seems at all heavy-handed, remember, our, our paradigm for giving and generosity is based on who? Jesus, yes. It's based on Jesus. God, in Jesus, shows us the true depth of the Father's willingness to give until it hurts. So costly generosity isn't about being hardcore for the sake of being hardcore. It's about tapping into the heart of God, discovering what He knows so well, disciplining ourselves to feel generosity so that we can be shaped by it. Not just numbers disappearing digitally from a bank account, but something that actually cost you something. One of the world's most beloved Christmas stories is O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. 
in which I'm sure most of you know, a husband and wife each part with their most treasured possessions in order to buy a Christmas gift for the other. But having sold his father's pocket watch to pay for his wife's gift, the chain that she gifts him is now useless. And having sold her long hair to buy that chain, the husband's gift of a beautiful set of combs is now useless for his wife. And though the gifts are now useless, they now represent the true cost of self-sacrificial generosity and love in a way that no useful gift can. And the world has loved that story for more than a century because we understand that true giving, like love, is self-sacrificial. And know this, when you give to the church, your gift is not received by me or by Cam or by Megan in the, in the uh, strict sense. It is a gift received by God himself. Think of Paul's language in verse 18. He says, They are a fragrant offering, your gifts, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to who? God. You are not giving ultimately to Paul or to Van City or to me or Cam or Megan. It is a sacrifice pleasing to God. I've known people who withheld giving because they were upset with the choice the church made or mad at one of its leaders or something like that, but ultimately, they were withholding from God. And Paul's is a powerful metaphor. In ancient Israel, Jews would come to the temple to make sacrifices, and the livestock and crops that they used in the sacrificial system um, were akin to their currency. And the sacrifice was, in essence, a gift to God, but a percentage of those sacrifices were set aside for the priests who worked at the temple every single day to enable this place of worship to function in the first place. And that was a system that God set in place, not the priests. So even though the gift provided a wage for the temple priests, it was a gift intended for and received by God. So here in Philippians, Paul is picking up on all that when he says it's a fragrant offering acceptable to God. He's picking up on all that and saying that the same is true for the church of Jesus. That the act of giving to God is a gesture, gesture of trust in God as the ultimate provider. Now if you remember my mini rant on the prosperity gospel, the idea is not you do for God and God does for you. The idea is that when you practice radical, self-sacrificial giving, when you tap into God's heart and character, you are learning to embody and to actually believe that beautiful lyric from the psalmist, God is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So if you're thinking, man, I mean, that all sounds good, but how can I give, or I have so little, or I'm not ready to sacrifice my own finances, or that would mean I would have to give up this thing for myself, or can my budget take that hit? Understand Paul's words. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in the Messiah, Jesus. You will have what you need, and you will only learn to see that when you step into giving. And please listen when you refuse to practice generosity, this also shapes you. You learn to see what you have as never enough, to always want just a little bit more, to believe the lie that if you just had X, then you would be all set, and when you get it, then you'll be all set. But when you step into giving and you practice it more and more and you start to see God's generosity everywhere, you become grateful for the things that you have. And you learn to see generosity in everyday exchanges in the things that God does every single day in the big and small sense. Because you are made in God's image. And God is generous. 
He gives. So when you are not generous, when you do not give, you distort God's image in you and you become more and more inclined to see all of God's generosity as not good enough. But when you tap into God's heart, you become overwhelmed by the ever-present generosity of God. Those of you who give know this very well. And when that happens, you are inclined to worship in reciprocation by giving. Because giving is an act of worship. I realize this sounds like a really sappy analogy, but have you ever been given a gift so meaningful that your immediate and genuine reaction was to, without saying anything, embrace the gift giver? Or have you ever seen children on Christmas morning that are so delighted by the extravagance of their parents' generosity that they lose any sense of composure even for kids? It's kind of embarrassing but also kind of cute if they're yours but not for anyone else. And they shout and they dance and they run in place like they're going somewhere or something. Have you ever wanted so badly to find the perfect, most meaningful gift for someone that you love? Not for any sense of social pressure or obligation or desire to impress anyone, but because you realize that this is an opportunity to express with a simple gesture how much that person means to you and how much you love them. Giving is worship. Thus, the final line in our text tonight reads, To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Worship. Now, I know, deep breath. Thank you guys for your patience. Before we end, I want to speak candidly, if I may, about our church, and we'll be done in March. We will, by the grace of God, celebrate our fourth anniversary of gathering here like this on Sunday nights. It's been some of the best, most beautiful, most difficult and painful and wonderful years of my life personally. Whatever happens, if tonight was it, I would be shaped by these years and this community and many of you individually for the rest of my life. And I'm very grateful for it. And there are all sorts of reasons and areas in which our church is uniquely gifted and uniquely capable. But we've been pretty honest with you guys for a while now that giving has not been our strong suit. Lucky for us, the church that planted us sent us across the river with a generous, uh, a generous nest egg in the old savings account. And we have, frankly, lived off of that thing. And because Van City has always been so frugal, we could have kept that up for years and years and years. But then I almost collapsed and dropped dead. Now, I was, for the first long stretch, the only person working here full time. And I was not doing well, to be perfectly honest. Cam worked part-time here, part-time at Fred Meyer, and he wasn't going to be able to keep it up for much longer either. We needed more staff, but we couldn't afford them. So the elders were in something of a bind. We talked to all our professional people. We prayed through it. We discussed it for months. I met with several pastors and mentors, older and wiser, who have been in the exact same predicament. And I remember telling one of them, who was also a good friend of mine, that I was scared to solve one problem by creating another problem, knowing that if we don't grow in giving, the church will eventually just run out of money and a lot faster. And he said, I remember very plainly, yeah, but would you rather the church fail because you ran out of money or because you had a nervous breakdown? And I was like, well, I mean, when you put it like that. So... <laughs> After many discussions after that with other people, all of them were unanimous in their advice and with the elders' prayerful blessing, we hired Cam and Patrick full-time and we hired Megan and Eric part-time. Now, Megan and Eric work for Peanuts 
and they are both about as amazing at their respective jobs as a person can possibly be. Thank God for them. The three full-time employees make significantly less than the median household income for Vancouver, Washington, and that is in no sense a complaint. We're absolutely fine, thanks. I mention it only to point out that though the bulk of our budget goes to salary, people, after all, work here, uh, no one is out for extravagant numbers, no one is out asking for pay raises or anything like that. One of our elders pointed out just this last week that our spending is actually in line with our vision. So we have a million kids, if you didn't notice, and we think Jesus cares deeply for them, so Megan works here. We care about worship and creativity, so Eric works here. Bible and theology are a huge aspect of what we do. That's my job. And if you haven't noticed, all of that happens in communities, which Cam oversees. And someone has to make sure that all those people's crazy ideas are actually pragmatically executed and accomplished without ruining everything. So Patrick does all that, plus every one thing left over, which is most things. Um, and full disclosure... I don't even have any say in what I or anyone else gets paid. We have a group called, uh, technically I think on paper it's the Committee for Compensation, but Scott insists that it be referred to as the Compensation Council because he says he doesn't do committees, which yeah, it does sound cooler that way. All people in that council or committee are people from our church but who don't work here, who get together and they make decisions about salaries. And that's to protect us. I can't just say, hey Cam, I think you need a raise, you know, wink, wink. And he's like, you know what? You've been working hard, too. You should have a raise as well. We have elders who are not on staff. We have mentors and advisors, pastors, all of whom don't get paid by this church but care about it deeply. And they speak into the final decisions, financial decisions of the church. And there are a lot of misunderstandings I've heard from well-meaning people who are hoping that we can pull through financially. I don't want to turn this into a budget meeting or anything, but I do want to share a few clarifying details with you guys as we head into a new year as a church. Some people wonder, well, our church is pretty small, maybe the budget's too big, or maybe our people are too young, or they're too poor, or whatever reason it might be, but that budget wasn't pulled out of thin air. If you count up just the units of people that are in Van City communities, um, a unit is like a single person, a family is one unit, a couple is one unit, you get the idea. Just the ones that are already in communities. If you count those up, you apply a humble average income, knowing full well that many make much less, some make much more, so a humble average, and you take just 10% of that number, you would make our budget and then some. And again, that's not me sitting around with a calculator. I don't do that at all because I'm really bad at it. We have, from before day one, worked with a team of incredibly capable accountants and human resources payroll, way more professional than Van City seems, believe me. And they work with lots of churches our size and way bigger to keep books and bank accounts. They keep us tax compliant, which is a big deal. They make sure that we aren't idiots with our money, all that stuff. These people are great. But they tell it like it is, and like it is for years now has been telling us, look, based on lots and lots of data, you know, give or take, uh, data about church sizes and demographics and all that, a church as small as yours with a demographic as young as yours should still make the budget that you've set. Meaning, it's not because we're too small or too young, but because we have not matured as a community in the spiritual discipline of giving. We finished the, this fiscal year with more than a $100,000 deficit, and that comes out of the nest egg. And I hope you guys will believe me when I say that this is not, a, I know it sounds really dire, it's not a guilt trip, it's not a doomsday clock or something like that. But because we want your prayers, and because we want to grow together in this, 
know that if things don't change, uh, we can keep this up, living off the nest egg for another two years or so, give or take, which fly by, believe me. And unless we grow in this, that would be the financial conclusion of Van City Church. I think uh, were it an earlier season of our church, I might feel deeply discouraged, despairing even. But honestly, I don't. I feel hopeful. I feel no need to soothe the predicament with unrealistic or blind optimism. And I feel no need to deflate hope with pessimism or, you know, call it realism. I feel as though God is the shepherd of Van City Church. We lack nothing. I don't think that means that God will supernaturally pay our bills even if we don't grow in generosity. Lots of churches, good churches, filled with the Spirit, have closed their doors without the money to keep them open. It happens more often than it doesn't happen, actually. But I believe we can grow. I believe that we can tap into the heart of God and be changed as a result. I believe this because I've seen it in many of you, in my own life, in the story of this church. There are all kinds of stories, incredible stories of generosity here in this community, individuals, communities, families who have come through in major ways for Van City, for people in their community, for the sake of the kingdom. And there can be more stories like that. In the coming year, we're going to tell more and more of them, celebrate generosity, not to brag about any one person or group, but to remember that this is something that we can do and we should celebrate. So to end, I have two humble requests, if I may. The first is to start giving. It's really that simple. And please listen to me when I say this. I know this from my own experience, from the stories of a dozen other people. If you place a qualification before your giving, meaning I will start giving when, you will likely never give. Uh, if you say to yourself, I'll give when my income hits this number, or I'll give when I'm sure the church deserves it, well, that'll not work, or I'll give when I have time to write up a better budget for myself, then you'll make a new qualifier, then a new one, and a new one. The secret is to simply begin giving. A detailed budget is fantastic. If you're an adult, you should absolutely have one. But don't wait for one to start giving. Don't wait for financial excess or even stability because both are fleeting and your giving, like prayer or worship, cannot be contingent on things beyond your control. Like any other spiritual discipline, you will likely never be in every way prepared before you begin. You just have to start. So begin with 10%. You can sign up for like the automated, recur automatic recurring payments through the app, PushPay, whatever works for you, however you like to do it. But start with 10%. There's a biblical precedent for that for a reason. It's an ancient art form, tithing as an art form. And then grow into generosity as a practice from every single paycheck. But don't stop there. Ask God regularly and consistently. Every time money comes into your life, what now? Lord, more? Where do I give? How much? How often? Yes, this is absolutely about the future and stability of this church, but it's also about your discipleship to Jesus. I know it's probably easy to assume I'm up here in arms about Van City's bottom line or something, but honestly, and I say this with a tremendous amount of sincere kindness, I'm no longer scared or worried or fretful. I have, I think, a healthy level of um, detachment, not unconcerned, but I see the numbers every week. I know this year was bad financially and that things could go bad overall. 
And I've had to confront that before God and talk to him about it again and again for months and months. And I've asked myself, if our church, like so many other plants, closed its doors one final Sunday because of finances, what, what would I do? And I believe I would thank God for these years. And I would ask him, what's next? Step into that. So I'm not scared. I'm not despairing. But I don't want that to be the, our story. I've learned to see this like uh, every other aspect of our discipleship and the way that we grow in it. I want to see a community of people. It's fine with me if it's small. There's actually a lot that's great about that. It's fine with me if it's mostly young, uh, whatever. But a community of people who are learning to pray, learning to hear God's voice and to prophesy, learning how to read and understand the Bible better all the time, learning to truly love God and love one another, and learning how to give themselves away to embody radical generosity. I can already tell you so many amazing stories about men and women here, communities, families, who have walked with Jesus into more healing and freedom, who have, by the grace of God, learned and matured and are walking faithfully with Jesus because of this family, because of what God is doing in this family. I want this to be a part of our story as well. We learned to be generous together. I don't want a handful of generous people to carry the church. I want all of us, the very poorest among us, to learn the paradoxical freedom of giving and to say, like Paul, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So with that in mind, would you guys join me as I pray for the finances of Van City Church, for the future of this church as we head into another year together? Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.